I'm going to express my gratitude to just um, more people than I can name individually, but everybody who's been a part of um, these last really couple weeks and, and time leading up to that as we prepare, has prepared for Holy Week, everybody who's been a part of, of making this such a special time in the life of the church from um, the choir who, who gave their talents last week and gave us so much in that cantata. I want to thank everybody on the special events team. If you didn't stick around last week um, for the Easter egg hunt, it was a great time. We had just tons of eggs out there. We had a lot of kids. It was a lot of fun to sh- you know, bring them in, feed them, hop them up on sugar, and send them home. And uh, that, was, that was, I love that now that my kids are adults. Um, so, but, but thank you in all seriousness to everybody who was a part of that all morning long to, to make that such a special day. And then throughout this week on Monday, Thursday services, everybody who participated on Good Friday. And then this morning, this is now our fourth service of the morning. Each one has been a little bit different starting at 6.30 with sunrise and then each of the services and now our ensemble that's here this morning. We're just really blessed with so much talent and it's been such a joy this morning and I think everybody who has, uh, who has been a part of it, especially want to recognize, um, it was since this morning, since the first service, Christy, uh, Kimla, uh, Patty, who else is there? Are you guys the only three that have been here, all four? No, John missed one. He, he, didn't, get, he didn't get the first one. He didn't get the, the 815. They've been at all services this morning. This is the fourth time they're hearing this sermon. And um, they should get a prize for that. So... At, as they have heard it so much, I'm sure they know it, so well, I'm going to invite them to come and deliver it now, and uh, I'm going to go sit down, um, but uh, no, I, I do thank, thank everybody. Yes, John, John did three. This is John's third time. He has to scramble around during 8.15, getting ready for 9.45, so, uh, but anyway, seriously, it is a joy, and this is a wonderful day, and hope it's a, a been a blessed and will be a blessed day for you, and um, we're going to turn this morning, we could have, and I could have chosen from any of our um, gospels to read the account of the first Easter morning. They, they all tell a, the same story from uh, unique perspectives. And I chose this morning to read from the Gospel of Luke, the first 12 verses. So I want to um, invite you to either follow the scriptures on the screens, follow your Bibles, or just listen and allow the story to speak to you this morning as we read Luke's account of, of Resurrection Sunday. It says, On the first day of the week, Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves, and he went away 
wondering to himself what had happened. Friends, sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Friends, let us pray. Gracious Lord, that you would speak to us anew. The story that we have heard so many times before, that we know so well, may it be as a fresh wind to us today. May it speak your truth, your love, your grace into our lives, and may we be shaped into the likeness of Christ. We pray your blessing on these moments. In the name and the power and the presence of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. So I am... as I was preparing this last, uh, these last few weeks for this message and, and reading and studying, as I do, I came across an article, and it was the title that kind of caught my attention. And it was this. It said, scientists have identified, they have found, if you will, the largest structure in the universe. The largest structure in the universe. Does anybody want to venture a guess what the largest structure in the universe is? I wouldn't have had a clue. It is, by its very definition, nothing. Nothing. Specifically, it is 1.8 billion light years of nothing. Science has discovered, scientists have discovered an area of space that has nothing in it. No gases, no stars, no planets, no galaxies. In fact, in this space, they would expect to have found over 10,000 galaxies. Instead, 1.8 billion light years in width of nothing. Now, uh, put that in perspective. Um, just not that we can even begin to grasp it. But a light year, obviously, as as probably all of you know, the distance that light travels in one year. One light year. Anybody know how far light travels in one year? That's right, I heard it. Six trillion miles. Six trillion miles. Now, so that's one light year. The nearest star to us that we can see in the sky is... is, um, Proxima Centauri, I believe is how it's pronounced. It is four light years away. We're talking an expanse of space, 1.8 billion light years of nothing. And what is so perplexing about this is it, it's thrown scientists for a loop because they didn't expect this to be something that was possible. And when I read the article, what jumped out at me was a quote of one of the scientists, and this is what he said. He said, this discovery, and this goes back a few years, but he said, this discovery has been a challenge to our orthodoxy. A challenge to our orthodoxy. Now that jumped out at me because orthodoxy <laughs> is a word that most often we associate with religious thought. Orthodoxy, by its definition, means right opinion or right thoughts. And we apply it to religious doctrine all the time. But he was using it in the context of science. But what he was basically saying is this finding, this discovery, this great cold space, they call it a super void. It's just an expanse of cold, an expanse of nothing. It's thrown them for a loop because they didn't think it was possible. It challenged the way that they thought about how the universe expands. And they just wouldn't have thought that this was something that was possible. So they've had to rethink how they understand things. They've had to rethink in the face of this big empty, this big nothing, 
they've had to rethink what they understood about the universe and how the universe works. And, and that became a wonderful bridge for me to thinking about what happened on Easter Sunday, the original Easter Sunday, the day when the women went to the tomb. As, as Luke says, they went with their spices. They went to anoint the body. If you remember, they, they, because of, of the chasing daylight when Jesus was crucified, they just had enough time to get Jesus off the cross and into the tomb on the Friday before the sun set. And when the sun sets on Friday, the Jewish Sabbath begins, and they couldn't anoint the body. They couldn't prepare it for burial because you cannot handle the dead body on the Sabbath. It's forbidden. So they got Jesus into the tomb. They sealed the tomb, and they waited till daybreak on Sunday morning to come and to finish the preparation for burial. So they were bringing the spices to have the funeral, to say goodbye. And when they get to the tomb, as each of the gospel writers accounts, the stone is rolled away, and in it is a void. There's nothing there. At least not the thing that they most expected, and that is the, Jesus, the body of Jesus. And it begins immediately to challenge the way that they think because they don't know what to make of it because they knew he was there Friday when the body went in they expect he's going to be there on Sunday and it throws them for a loop in fact the gospel of Luke here some translations say they were greatly perplexed by this in in the gospel of Mark it says that they were alarmed by this Matthew implies that they were fearful they were afraid and the Gospel of John, I think in the most poignant and, and beautiful scene that gets pictured in the, in the Gospels, reminds us that after they see this, they run back and they get the disciples. And Peter and John run to the tomb and they check it out themselves. And then they leave. And John says that afterward, Mary stood at the tomb and she wept. Because she just wanted to say goodbye. But what she never thought for a second was that Jesus was alive. Because that's not the way we think. If you are in your right mind, you don't expect a dead body to get up and walk away. You wouldn't, and she didn't. In spite of what we proclaim by faith, in spite of what we firmly believe happened on that Easter morning, it's not a natural way of thought. And it wasn't for her, and it usually isn't for us. Years ago, when I was in my chaplaincy program, part of my education in seminary, I did, a, did a, and I've talked about it before, a residency or, or a semester as a chaplain. Um, at the hospital there in Durham. And um, we would have to do on-calls. We, you know, we would go to the hospital almost every day, but you had to do two or three times during the semester, 24 hours, where you stayed at the hospital, you slept in the on-call room, you carried the, the beeper at the time, remember beepers, and um, you could be called at a moment's notice to, in any crisis. And so I got a call, my first on-call night, and I was called to do something I'd never had to do before, which was they asked me to accompany a couple hospital officials to take the body of somebody who had passed away down into the morgue. And so I come into this body. We, you know, use the back freight elevators. You try to stay off the main hallways for something like this out of respect. And we took this body into the morgue. And it was a huge vault and a big security-protected door. And it was a cooled room. And, and the body was placed there in the morgue. And we left. And a few hours later, I was called again. And this time I was asked to accompany the same officials as they picked up the body to take it so it, would be, it could be transported to where it was going to be prepared for burial. Now, here's what never, ever crossed my mind. Never even crossed my mind that when we got to the morgue, to the vault, 
that the body wouldn't be there. We'd taken it, we'd left it, we expected it to be there when we got back, and it was. But had it not been there, let me tell you what else I would not have thought. I would not have naturally assumed, had we gotten there and it was missing, that this person had gotten off the table, walked out of the room, and was wandering the hall somewhere. That's not the way we think. Now, I've got to tell you a side story. This is great. This morning, I told, I've told this story at every service. After the sunrise service, a member of the church came up to me. And I love this story because it tells you the weird way my mind works. But he said that he had been an orderly at a hospital and done some of the same things. And he said one day he and a big, burly security guy took a body down into the morgue and left it there. And he said about an hour later, somebody else passed away. And we had to take another one down. He said when we got in there, he said that the best they can tell is that the cool air had caused the muscles of the person who had passed away to kind of spasm. And the body had sat up. <laughs> and when the guard walked in, he freaked out <laughs> and ran like a scared child, which is what I would do too, okay? I find it hysterical if it doesn't happen to you. It's very funny. But, but why? Why would that be so frightening? Because you don't expect that, right? When somebody's passed away, they're gone. They're gone. We don't expect those kind of things. Mary didn't either. Mary didn't. So she stands at the tomb, and as John says, she weeps, and she weeps because there's two things that have happened here. She's experienced a physical void. Jesus isn't there. But that becomes a powerful metaphor for what she's experiencing spiritually and emotionally. She's feeling the void, the pain of loss. This is her master. This is her teacher. But most importantly, this was her friend. And she has watched them arrest him. She's watched them beat him. She's watched them crucify him. And she's watched him die. And she is feeling the emptiness that sometimes life can dish upon us. We, we know if we have lived any significant years on this earth, we know what the pain of emptiness and void feels like. At various degrees and at various levels, but, but our journey of life teaches us that from time to time. If you've ever given your heart to somebody who's rejected it, you felt the void and the emptiness of that kind of loss. If you've invested yourself in, in maybe a, a sport that mattered to you and you worked really hard and at the end you didn't make the team anyway, you know what the void feels like. Or to, to pour your savings into, into a, a house and watch the economy drop and you lose all your money, you know what the void feels like. So these can be various degrees. To, to work your whole life for a career you feel called to and when you start to do it, you realize that you don't like the work. Or people have crushed your dreams. Or the most significant is Mary, to lose somebody that you love. It's the most, the, the most painful and, and significant void we experience. And somebody that we love, we say goodbye to. There, there's so many ways we experience the void. That's what Mary is experiencing in the, the most profound and painful way imaginable. That's what she's feeling. And that's what I want you to just sit with for a moment. The experience of feeling the emptiness of that morning the void of that morning, the hopelessness of that morning. Because when we allow that to take root, we begin to experience the power of what Jesus does next. And that is, he steps into the emptiness. Jesus steps into the voids of Mary's life and begins to transform that. He begins to give new meaning. In fact, it is foreshadowed by the voice and the words of the angel who say to Mary, the angels who say to her, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you come to a place of emptiness? 
to find life because he's not here. He is risen. And in that moment, things begin to change. Her way of thinking begins to change, and her heart begins to be prepared for the power of what is about to come next. She's about to experience a God who transforms the emptiness and the voids of our lives. And Jesus is about to show up. You know, it, we, we know the reality of these kind of struggles, these kind of moments. In fact, I was reading a, a psychologist this week who, who said something that was very interesting. She said, as she wrote, um, Twenge was her last name. She said that one of the worst things we do is we teach kids that if they, if they just believe in themselves, they can accomplish anything. Isn't that odd to think? Because normally we think that's such a positive thing to teach. She said that's so destructive. Because the reality is, um, w- what we do is we set them up to think that if they work hard, if they, if, if they just try their best, that things are always going to work out for them. She said, that's the implication. It's always going to work out. Wherever you want to go, however you want to go, it's all going to work out. And what happens is life smacks them in the face, as life has a tendency to smack us in the face. And we realize that you can work hard and you can do all the right things, and sometimes things don't go your way. Sometimes life still gets hard. Sometimes you still face difficulty and tragedy and loneliness and, and struggle. And we've not prepared them to deal with that. Maybe we don't feel prepared to deal with that. The reality is that happens. But what we learn, what, what Easter Sunday tells us is that sometimes we have to experience empty tombs in order to know resurrection life. Sometimes we have to experience the empty tombs to know the power of resurrection life. Because in that moment of emptiness and brokenness, when life has not gone the way she expected, things have not turned out the way that she thought they would, Jesus shows up. And the stories that follow the resurrection repeatedly are about the unique ways that Jesus shows up and begins to fill the voids that the experiences of life of life have left in the lives of those who love him. Peter says in I mean Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, "I have passed on to you what is of first importance, most important. And that is in accordance with the scripture that Jesus suffered and died." And on the third day he rose from the dead, again, as was told by the scriptures. But then Paul begins to trace the unique places that Jesus began to show up. He says, first he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter. And then to the ten. And then to the five hundred who gathered on the mountain. And then he says, even to one who was untimely born, Paul says he showed up to me. He begins to step into the stories of those who loved him and believed in him. And that's what Easter is about. See, we have this tendency, this mistake, is we, we project resurrection as to be the life that we will one day know when we pass away. And that is true. That is the promise. Jesus speaks those words to us that he spoke to that criminal on the cross next to him. This day you will be with me in paradise. That is the promise of faith. But it is not the only promise of faith because life is not something that we wait for. Life is something that Christ speaks into us the moment we invite him in. Life begins to change. It becomes different the moment we encounter a resurrected Christ. And it begins now. Resurrection and eternity begins now. And so Jesus begins to step into the voids. We see it over and over again. Mary, who weeps outside the tomb, feeling the emptiness of her loss and her pain. Jesus shows up and by his very presence transforms that into a joy of new life. Peter, Peter, who had betrayed Jesus, had denied him three times, had done the very thing he promised he wasn't 
going to do in the void and the emptiness of his grief and of sorrow and of his failure. He encounters a risen Christ on the shore of Galilee who over a meal forgives him and reminds him that in spite of your shortcomings, you have not lost the purpose and the plan I have for your life. He redeems him and gives him a new start. Disciples, ten of them, who scattered for fear of their lives, who abandoned Jesus in his time of need, who were so afraid of what was going to happen to them, avoiding their lives of cowardice and fear. But when they encounter the presence of Jesus, they are invigorated with a strength and a new hope, so much so that nine out of those ten remaining disciples would give their life for Jesus. The void gets filled, and two disciples who begin a journey to to Emmaus because it's over. We were wrong. Jesus isn't who we thought he was. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the deliverer. We thought he was the new hope, but he died. That couldn't happen. They think the story's ended. That's their void. And into that, Jesus shows up. And by the end of the day, they realize that what they thought was the end was just the beginning. And they run back to Jerusalem to tell the story. Over and over and over again, Jesus steps into the voids. And he brings in the places we'd least expect to find it, unexpected life, new life, new beginnings, new hope. That's what Easter is all about for us. That's the promise that we have when we invite Jesus in. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician, physicist, and also philosopher, he described the human heart as an infinite abyss. He said, the problem is we try to fill the hole with the wrong things, the things that don't last, (coughs) relationships, materials, careers, wealth. He said, those things can't fill that hole. He said, only an immutable and an infinite presence can fill that. Only God can fill that. That hole in our hearts was created for a relationship with him. He's the only one that can step in and give that meaning. The question of Easter becomes, have we invited him in? Have we in our moments of feeling that empty tomb, that emptiness, that uncertainty, that struggle, have we invited Jesus in to give new meaning, to begin to transform what we thought we knew into something completely new, to give us a new eyes, new thought, new direction? That's what Easter is. That's the promise of Easter. Not life that will be, but life that is. When we invite Jesus in. When we let him speak new truth into the experiences and the struggles of our lives. We meet Jesus at an empty tomb and a place of death becomes the beginning of unexpectant life. Amen? Amen. Friends, let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the truth of Easter. The gift that you give us in Christ Jesus, the promise that we have through faith, that we would embrace that, that we would live it, that we would give our hearts to you, that we would receive the life that you offer that is now and forever. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your hope. We pray it in the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen.